Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, an update on the Brooklyn sex cult case involving actress Allison Mack. Alicia Garza will talk about the Black Futures Lab, and the Billy Holiday Theater explores colorism. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Ashley Ford, joined by producers Ross Tuttle and Shireen Bargi. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Ashley. Hey, y'all. Why y'all? Are y'all cool? Y'all good being here? <laughs> we're, we're, talk, we're, a bit, we're a bit somber. We're talking about yeah. sex cults. You know, we're feeling like a little We are. Dude. We are. Shireen is with us for an update on the now Brooklyn-based sex cult Nexium, though Albany media are still calling it the Capital Region Sex Cult. Just adding to that good old upstate-downstate tension, I guess. Shireen was at a pre-trial hearing for Nexium's head, Keith Ranieri, and actress Allison Mack on Friday. Shireen, what did you see? So to bring everyone um, up to speed, Ranieri and Mack are both being charged with uh, sex trafficking and forced labor mm -hmm. in relation to their involvement in Nexium. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with Nexium, uh, it pitched itself as being a self-help group. But now it's being accused of actually having a subgroup that recruited women to basically act as slaves, have sexual relations with Ranieri, and also they were branded. They were also starving themselves. Yeah, they were right? also starving themselves. Oh Lord! What was the what was the name of the subgroup? So the subgroup's name was DOS, and DOS, okay. MS DOS, okay. which is what I thought of um, immediately. And um, Mac was allegedly second in command in the sex group, so she was a major recruiter and facilitator uh, that oversaw the branding, and she allegedly. actually... Allegedly. Allegedly, yeah. So and she was allegedly the VP of a sex cult, basically. is what I'm yeah. hearing. Excellent. Yeah. Ross, thoughts? It's fun to be living in Brooklyn these days. There's so much going on. Mm -hmm. We never knew that there'd be a sex cult here that would visit Brooklyn. They came down here. They chose our fair city. Mm -hmm. What would we be if we didn't have a sex cult? Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Kansas got a sex cult, too. Probably. Um, but what was interesting, I think, though, was what transpired at this yeah. hearing. And Shereen's so, got some of that Yeah, so the lawyers representing both Mac and Ranieri maintained their innocence, and they said that these were all consenting adult women who knew what they were doing. They joined this group by their own volition. The problem, for me, anyway, is just that, um, you know, different strokes for different folks... But I ain't never heard of nobody that stroked so hard that they wanted to live with a bunch of other chicks and starve themselves and get branded and all bone one dude. That sounds to me like uh, the opposite of a stroke. Sounds like uh, somebody's being imprisoned. Well, that's, I think, the, what, they're, what they're saying, you know, and they were trying to slim themselves down to about, I think he had a preferred weight, like around 87 pounds. Yeah. 87 is right? pounds yeah. is the preferred that's weight. That's the preferred weight. Yeah, yeah. that's not, this, don't nothing sound consensual <laughs> about this to me. The thing that makes this whole thing a little bit iffy is that the women were asked to provide compromising material upon joining, mm. and those who wanted kind of out were kind of threatened with the release of this. Isn't that the definition of coercion? Is I use some, like, information or my influence over you to get you to do something that you don't actually want to do? I, yeah, I just don't know if they've established that yet, and I guess we'll see, because... Um, but right now, what the lawyers were saying... So the lawyers were saying they were asking for bail, but the prosecutor said there's no amount of bail that would um, satisfy them because of the seriousness I mean... of the charges. So... And, and I, I think they're also worried he's a flight risk, because they yeah. did have to pick him up in Mexico the first time around, yeah. after the first story came out. 
Um, and also, wasn't it Frank Parlato who we spoke to on the phone, yes. who was the whistleblower, yeah. who said that, well, there are the, all these sex slaves who are going to be mobilized to come out and really throw a wrench in the works. So I think they're kind of worried about the, the prospect of that. That is terrifying. I mean, I mean what legions of sex slaves coming to his defense. Somehow. I'm pretty sure two, two of them were there at the courthouse. At the courthouse? Uh, yeah, at the courthouse. Two of them were there. Um, I didn't really... Um, How did you say, identify them? Were they 87 pounds? <laughs> well, there were a lot of thin people there. I mean, they look like the average white thin girl from Brooklyn, but... Um, yeah, it's gonna just, yeah. Yeah, but the prosecution did uh, also told the judge um, that additional um, indict an additional indictment will be coming, mm -hmm. and more people will be charged. So, tell us about the lawyers um, for the defense, because I understand the defense. The main defense lawyer is someone who advertises himself as handling complex criminal cases. So one of the main defense lawyers had a list of very interesting clients that included Martin Shkreli, um, Dominique Strasskamp, and last but not least, a Brooklyn rabbi who um, was accused of using cattle prods to torture rec reluctant Orthodox Jewish husbands into giving divorces or gets to their wives. Um, cattle prods. Cattle prods. So we've got like a cattle theme going on with like the branding and the prodding and the husbandry. Basically, yeah. So the lawyer forced asked... Forced husbandry. Forced husbandry. Allegedly. Alleged forced husbandry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the lawyer asked for a speedy trial, but the judge set the date for October, um, for October 1st, mm -hmm. and the next hearing will be on June 12th. Oh. And you'll, you'll be there? Yep. And next time you'll even be better at identifying who the sex slaves are? Alleged Probably. sex slaves? Yeah, okay. I just have to... <laughs> we believe in you, Shereen. Do your best identifying we'll the sex slaves. Won't let you down. Well, Don't that, let that, me that, down. They're going to be your sources. That's where you're going to get, you're going to get inside. You're going to get the real dope Absolutely. from them. Absolutely. Shereen, thanks for the update. Coming up, a conversation with one of the Black Lives Matter founders, Alicia Garza, on her latest project to harness black political power. And then we'll hear about racism and colorism in a new play at the Billy Holiday Theater. Don't go away. In response to her sorrow and dismay at the not guilty verdict for George Zimmerman in the killing of Trayvon Martin, our next guest posted the following to Facebook in 2013. Black people, I love you. I love us. Our lives matter. These words help spark a movement. In the past several years, Black Lives Matter has driven the conversation about the disparate and racist treatment black people still receive when it comes to law enforcement and beyond. But moving past conversation into action has been key for Alicia Garza and is central to her latest endeavor, Black Futures Lab. She joins us on Skype to talk about the lab's latest effort, the Black Census Project. Alicia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The first question I just want to ask you about is, since the last election, what have you learned about progressive versus conservative politics, you know, also just the state of politics in this country? Well, since 2016, what I've learned, as well as the rest of the country, is that elections do matter. And one of the things that feels really important that I think we need to talk about as it relates to elections is that it's not just about elections. It's actually about political power. Mm -hmm. And when I'm talking about power, what I mean is the ability to make decisions over our own lives, the ability to determine where resources go, 
the ability to set the narrative about who we are and who we can be. And I also mean the ability to reward or punish based on uh, whether or not an elected official or a representative is actually carrying out the agenda that their constituents want them to do. And so that's really why we started the Black Futures Lab, because we believe that Black people deserve to have the things that all people deserve. And in order for us to get that, we need to build independent, progressive Black political power. Talk to me about Black Futures Lab. How are you going to use this project to create what you're looking for here? Well, the Black Futures Lab is a new way of engaging Black people around issues that we care about and influencing legislators and decision makers mm -hmm. to carry out that agenda. But we are also looking at a bigger question, which is how do Black communities govern ourselves? It's not enough for us to elect representatives who then actually don't feel accountable to us. They feel accountable to the people that are raising money for them, to corporations who are influencing their decisions. And so what that requires of us is that we get organized and mm -hmm. that we get creative in a moment where many people are very cynical about politics. I, too, am cynical about politics, mm -hmm. but quite frankly, I'm not cynical about power. <laughs> no. And so... The Never Black that. Futures Lab is a series of interventions that aims to build power in cities and states for Black communities, for the things that we care about, so that we can have a Black future. Talk to me about some of the different initiatives that Black Futures Lab is putting out in order to help you meet that goal. Sure. Well, our first initiative is the Black Census Project. And as we speak, we are talking to 200,000 Black people wow. across the country about our experiences with the economy, with our democracy, with our criminal justice system, with our society. And more importantly, we are asking Black people, what are the solutions that we want to see to address the challenges that our communities face? Mm. What I'm so excited about in terms of the Black Census is that we're talking to all Black people, Black people who live in rural areas, Black people who are immigrants, Black people who are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated, Black people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. We really believe that in order to change politics and build power, we have to address the ways that our communities are complex and layered. And so to do that, we've launched the census online. You can take it at blackcensus.org. And we're also training 100 Black organizers in partnership wow. with Black-led grassroots organizations in 20 states across the country to make sure that the census gets to the communities that are the hardest to reach. When we're wow. done, we'll be using that data uh, to influence the ways that institutions engage our communities We'll be offering some recommendations for better ways to engage Black people in a sustainable way, not just during elections. Mm. And we'll also be using that data to launch Black to the Future, which is our new Black Public Policy Institute, where we're building the capacity of grassroots communities to be able to legislate solutions and alternatives in cities and in states. Black to the Future. I love yes. that. You know so I'm ready for that. I'm already <laughs> ready for that. 
I'm wondering, though, you know, I, I feel like whenever I hear about something like this happening, you know, I feel like we've had a couple of false starts with people who wanted to put out um, large-scale projects that would help engage black voters, inform black voters, empower black voters, and people donate a bunch of money or something like that, and then the thing disappears and you never hear anything else about it. And I'm wondering, you know, from those past false starts or failings, are you receiving any pushback from people or any critiques at this time? Well, I think what's real is that people have a lot of reason to be cynical. There's a lot that's going wrong in this country right now. And so what we're really powered by is our belief and our commitment to our communities and the alternatives that many of us are already moving without the resources and without the power that we need mm -hmm. to make those alternatives um, the constant. Right. And so, you know, I think that there's a couple of things that people have raised that I think are important concerns. Mm -hmm. So one is, you know, will this detract from the 2020 census that is also kind of moving through communities right now? Mm -hmm. And we want to be really clear that we think the census 2020 is important. And under this administration, we've already seen the ways in which uh, they're trying to cut our communities out. Right. For example, any questions about sexuality have been removed from the census. Mm -hmm. And there are already ways in which <clears throat> some of the questions on the 2020 census are actually designed to discourage the communities who need the census the most from participating. Wow. We've heard rumors, and rumors have been confirmed, actually, about uh, questions about immigration status mm -hmm. and concerns about whether or not this administration will take those responses and turn them over to Homeland Security. Right. And so what you can be sure of with our census project is that, one, we're not collecting any personal information. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, and we're doing that because we think it's important to protect people's privacy. Mm -hmm. But it's also extremely important that people understand that what the 2020 census does is it asks you about how many people are in your house. Right. It asks you where you live for the purposes of apportioning resources. Mm -hmm. Our census is asking you about your experiences. It's asking you to sound off on what you want to see for your future. Right. And the way that you can hold us accountable to that is by being engaged with our project, because right. we don't plan on going anywhere. Good. Uh, the other concern that we've heard, of course, is that, again, people are cynical about politics. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being cynical about politics, mm -hmm. but I do think that at this moment in history, that it's imperative that we take a clear stand about which side we're on. And the only way for us to do that is to be actively engaged and to take up space. We right. can't cede political space uh, to the people who literally don't want to see us survive. Mm. It's time to fight and claw for our space. Like Shirley Chisholm said, you know, if there's not a seat at the table for you, bring your folding chair. Bring your folding so we're asking chair. everybody to bring your folding chair because we don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon. I have one more question for you. Actually, maybe two more questions, but I definitely <laughs> want to hit you with this one. Um, <laughs> there are always going to be people, I think, who think of um, initiatives such as this as being not for them. 
um, not in service to the greater good, in service to just a small community. Are you at all, you know, and I know this seems like a silly question, but mm. I have to ask, are you concerned about, you know, uh, people who might see a project like this as in some way divisive? Like, is there room for it to be inclusive? But I, when I hear you say black and LGBTQ, I think inclusive. I think you're talking about across socioeconomic status. You're talking about a lot. So just mm -hmm. wanted to get your thoughts on that. It's a great question. So we've taken a lot of steps to make sure that people don't get left behind. Mm -hmm. And we're ready to take additional steps in any places that we've missed. So, for example, we've talked about really wanting to make sure that Black people who are immigrants get to participate in this survey and in this process. And that's mm -hmm. why we've translated the survey into eight languages that are wow. commonly spoken by a number of Black communities that live here in the United States so that nobody is left behind. Wow. We hear that, uh, you know, folks who are incarcerated often get left out of these kinds of projects, which is why we're partnering with organizations that work with people who are incarcerated in jails, in prisons, to make sure that we get the census inside the walls so that we can really hear from people who are being directly impacted by the criminal system what it is that you dream of for your future. Wow. And there's more that we can do. So we would encourage you to send your suggestions about how we can be more inclusive to us at the Black Futures Lab. And to do that, you can just go on our website, blackfutureslab.org. Alicia, that actually is my last question. That's all I have time for, but it's been fantastic talking to you. And I want to wish you the best with Black Futures Lab. Thank you so much. We're excited to be on. And our first organizer training kicks off in Detroit in just a week. So we'll let you know how it goes. Please do. Looking forward Excellent. to it. Yes, thank you. Have thank a great you. day. You too. I feel comfortable saying every Black American has either personal experience with or general understanding of colorism. Think of it as a poisonous societal gift to black people from white people who would like us to believe lighter skin is a marker of good moral character, socioeconomic potential, and beauty. This dehumanizing gift has been handed down from generation to generation over centuries. It's as evil and destructive as any other product of racism, and it's the subject of a play now being performed at Brooklyn's Billie Holiday Theater. I spoke the other day with its two stars about this powerful and vexing subject matter. Here's that conversation. Jessica and Tyrone, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank, thank you, you for having us. us. Oh my God, it's all the, oh, in tandem. I, I love that. Together. I love it. I can tell you work together. Jessica, I actually would love to start with you. Can you just give me an idea about the storyline of the play and the character that you actually play? Yes, I play Alma. Mm -hmm. um, the play is about Eugene and Alma and their trials and tribulations growing up in South Carolina as a very, very light-skinned boy and mm -hmm. as a darker, uh, thicker girl, mm -hmm. um, and what that means in the community. Um, and, you know, our parents pass things on to us. Mm -hmm. um, our parents give us things that they were given, mm -hmm. um, and it's up to us to decide how we move through life with them and how we use them. Um, so I think this story is a beautiful um, 
image of these two beautiful creatures trying to move through this world with all of the gook Mm -hmm. that is passed down to them, Um, sometimes successfully and sometimes not. Which sounds human mm-hmm. yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. We don't always get it right. Yeah. <laughs> How does it feel for you, mm-hmm. Tyrone, to be playing the role you play? It's a it's a really wild track mm-hmm. because uh, I, I did this show about eleven years ago, and I've learned so much more mm-hmm. over the course of the eleven years that I'm sort of ebbing into with age and and knowledge and the human experience and you know one of the things that has really sort of come to the fore for me is that Eugene um, is an innocent Mm -hmm. and when you see someone who is an innocent or has that quality of being an innocent what then happens with what is coming towards that person and how, whether they're a sponge or not, take it in and ingest it, or whether they ingest it and pass it through and continue to move forward through life. So for Eugene, that, that quality, that innocence, that wide-eyed uh, lifestyle has sort of opened him up to so much more until it all just comes crashing down back on top of him again. But... That's how Eugene found Alma, and that's where the love story begins. Mm-hmm. How do you even begin to prepare to play a character like Eugene? You know, um, today we, we had a, an audience, uh, and we had a, a talk back afterwards. And, you know, for me, uh, I, I, I always sort of mention my father when I, when I speak mm. of this piece because... Uh, my dad died 11 years ago, and that's the first time I did this role, and he was a big man. You know, yeah. he was an ominous presence in the house. And one of Eugene's first lines is, my father was a big, big man. Mm. And so with that in mind, you know, I, I always, no matter what, sort of take the text, the written word, as the written word, and then move from there. Um, but with life experience pushing up behind it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with this particular uh, version of the play that I'm doing, it, it's, it, it comes with that weight of right. life's lessons learned. But, you know, it's also a hefty piece of text. Yes. <laughs> you yes, know, it's, it is. It's Dale, and Dale's writing is beautiful and lyric and... and and uh, musical, musically inclined in mm-hmm. its, in the way it rolls and rewinds and sort of comes back at you and then snatches your heart and runs away from mm-hmm. her from with a little while, <laughs> you know. And tell me, what are some of the obstacles for you of playing Alma? Um, well, as a black woman and as a black woman who has always grown up, that was just a little bit. Um, thicker than the other girl, mm-hmm. um, was just a little bit, you know, darker than she wanted to be, and in some cases a little bit lighter than she wanted to be, or mm-hmm. in some cases a little bit, you know, thinner than she wanted to be. And, you know, to go through the world as a black girl with all those things that are put on you right. and to have this character who is just hit daily 
from the time she wakes up to the time she goes to bed with, you're too black, you're too ugly, you're mm -hmm. too fat, you're too poor. Right. You're just all these things. And to have this individual fight with a smile on her face mm -hmm. and get through in the way she does mm -hmm. is so inspiring to me. Wow. Um, because, you know, I still remember the little girl who got teased going down the hallway, mm -hmm. you know, who they would sing the Oprah song, the Oprah oh, yeah. theme song when I would walk down the hallway, mm -hmm. you know, when, you know, another light-skinned girl that had this long, beautiful hair that I remember till this day, they treated her like a princess. Mm -hmm. So I was taught from day one where I sit on the totem pole of beauty. Mm -hmm. And to find my way to the top of that totem pole, right. in my feeling and the way I carry myself, it, you know, playing Alma every night is just a master class mm. in resilience, um, in black beauty, yeah. um, in black girl magic, yes. and all of it. So I'm, I'm thankful for Alma, and I'm learning so much from her. I don't think there's a black girl who doesn't know mm -hmm. that struggle, to nope. be perfectly honest, is not familiar with it in some capacity wherever she sits on the color spectrum. Yeah. Um, but it is different for yeah. dark-skinned girls and deep brown girls. Yeah. Um, can you tell me, um, how does this play attempt to address that conversation specifically? Unapologetically. Mm. Dale has written a dialogue that does not allow you to go, oh, maybe that was something else. Mm. Or maybe she meant something different. Right. It is very pointed, um, mm -hmm. very specific, and very nail in the coffin right. um, sureness of mm -hmm. this is what this person believes, this is what this person sees, and this is how they are putting it on you. Right. And I think the, the beauty of it is all the characters that we play all have these numerous opinions and colors within the spectrum, and we comment on each other. And you might find yourself having an argument with yourself inside the piece mm -hmm. as two different light and dark. And, right. you know, it just, you find yourself in the middle of all these voices and stories, and it's just like you. As an actor, you end up going, y'all take it. Yeah. <laughs> it's yours. It's yours. It's yours. Like, it's come through me, mm -hmm. but it's yours. Mm -hmm. Tyrone, can you tell me, what do you hope people walk away from this play with? You know, you were talking a little bit earlier about what our parents give us and mm -hmm. what we have to decide to carry and what we, mm -hmm. you know, have to decide to throw away. When mm -hmm. people walk away from this play, what do you want them to be carrying with them? It's just the beginning of the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's it, a conversation that needs to happen and continue to evolve mm -hmm. uh, as it continues to happen. Because, you know, for Eugene's character, you know, he has a... And, and he has all the instruments that... He has all the information. Right. You know, his, his mom was disowned by his, his grandfather because she married somebody too dark. Mm -hmm. His father never had half of what he sees his wife, son, and grandfather being given. Mm -hmm. he, he, he dated somebody because they came from the same place, and the key line is they understood each other. Mm -hmm. And so for the conversation of this play to begin, we've got to come to a place where we can actually understand and continue to communicate right. with each other and hold each other up.
-hmm. You know, there's this there's this smart aleck character that I play as David's wife, you know, and he says, All of us right. need to come together. All of us need to stop all this. All of us need to stop holding each other back. Right. But he is the most aggressive, light skinned instigator, instigator we, in the play. So and we all know that guy. Yes, to be totally. perfectly out and it's not always a guy, but we know that yes, person. Listen, we absolutely I do Weiss's walk and you can hear yes. the audience go, I know him. I know him. <laughs> I know exactly who that is. So really quickly, because um, we've run out of time, yes. I could talk about this all day, mm. but how do people get tickets to the show? Mm -hmm. Please, first of all, I mean, we've got Instagrams, we've got Facebooks. You can follow me at mm -hmm. Jessica Francis Dukes. That is my Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, you can go to Billy Holiday Theater. They have an Instagram. They have a Facebook. They have a website, www.billyholiday.org. There's all types of wonderful ways to stay involved. Fantastic. Um, yes. and, and the tickets are affordable. You yes. know, yes. it's like, you know. The Billy Holiday Theater tickets always are. Yeah, it's a good know. show. They need to spend that money. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, hopefully people get it together yes. and come get these tickets. Mm -hmm. I know I'm about to get my tickets, awesome. so don't worry about awesome. that. Awesome. Awesome. And I'll see you guys there. Thank you yes, so much Thank for being you. here. Thank you for having us. It's really a good time. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today on the show tomorrow, a conversation about gentrification, not just here but around the world. And a former NFL player talks about a food justice initiative in Brooklyn. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barkey, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasak, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.